guests, longtime attenders. I don't care who you are. I'm just glad that you're here. If you've been here for 40 years or just 40 minutes, I'm glad that you're here. And if you've been coming for like a week or two, or maybe this is your first time here at Covenant, I just want to uh, welcome you, and I want you to fill out a brown connect card there in the back. Fill it out, put it into the, into the black basket, and then we'll get in touch with you, and then we'll put you on our email rotation, just so you can know what, we, what we've got going on here at Covenant Church. Well, my name is Ben Espinoza. I serve as a pastor here, a uh, pastor of community life here at Covenant Church. And we're going to be continuing our series called Cornerstone, where we're talking about the nature of the church through the lens of Jesus Christ. And last week we talked about how the church isn't a building, it's the people of God. And as the people of God, we're tasked with knowing Jesus and making him known here in this community. And our role is to glorify God and to declare his praises and to let others see how God has transformed us from the inside out so that we, that others may see the good things that God has done in Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to be, be tackling two things that the church does. And by doing them, they shape us more and more into the image of Christ. They challenge us in the task of knowing him on a more personal level. And they help us to remember all that he's done for us. Some of you may notice that I like to wear this ring on my right hand. And this is the ring that my grandfather liked to wear uh, during the last few years of his life. It has a diamond in the center. It has two E's on the side for Espinoza. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of it, but my grandpa was, so that was cool. And uh, every morning when I put this ring on, it reminds me of my grandpa. And my grandpa was an immigrant. He worked hard his entire life, and he instilled within my father and within me the value of working hard and setting goals. It reminds me of the time when I was eight and he let me drive a cart on a golf course and I ended up running it into a tree. And he caught the whole thing on tape. And none of you are ever going to see that. It reminds me of how he helped me pay for college, how he introduced me to different kinds of music, how he shared with me all the wisdom that he had learned. It reminds me of how he was my biggest fan whenever I'd accomplished great things. It reminds me of the resilience he had when he fought cancer until his death. And it reminds me that his last words to me were, Love you too, Benny. And every time I put this ring on, and every time I look at it, it conjures up these memories, these emotions, these feelings, these experiences that help me remember the time I was able to share with my grandpa and in the same way, these two things that we do as a church, baptism and communion, they help us remember all that Christ has done for us, all that he's doing in us, and all that he will do through us. And this morning, we're going to be exploring these two things in depth, these two very important practices of the church and what they truly mean and what they mean for us here at Covenant. But before we get into this, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll open our hearts, minds, and our eyes to the different things that you want us to learn this morning, Lord. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So before we dig into talking about baptism and communion and what they mean in the relationship to the church, we need to actually define what sacraments are. Simply put, a sacrament is something that we do because Christ commanded that we do it. And sometimes you'll hear other bodies refer to sacraments as ordinances. 
That's because prior to the Reformation in the 1500s, the church understood the sacraments as those things that we do that bestow upon us a certain grace. So in other words, when we're baptized or when we take communion, God is imparting some sort of grace to us that has the potential to contribute to our salvation. But after the Reformation, the Protestants, those who separated from the Catholic Church, came to understand the sacraments simply as things that Christ has commanded for his people to do for the Christian life throughout generations. Then over time, some Protestants wanted to shed the baggage of the term sacrament and have instead referred to them as ordinances. But in all actuality, it, it means the same thing for most churches. The debate isn't necessarily over doctrinal points. It's rather over semantics. Now, some churches will say that there are more than two sacraments. The Catholic Church recognizes seven official sacraments. Some evangelical churches will teach that there are four sacraments. Some have three. But in most evangelical Protestant churches, like Covenant Church, we only follow two sacraments, baptism and communion. So what does a sacrament mean here at Covenant Church? It means something that we do because Christ has commanded that we do it. So here at Covenant, we believe there are two sacraments. Number one, baptism. Number two, communion. So first off, let's talk about baptism. Baptism, simply put, is an outward symbol of an inward spiritual transformation. And the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to dip or to immerse. So in ancient days, when you were going to take a dip in the pool or wash your dishes or bathe yourself, you'd probably use this word, baptizo. But what's interesting is that while we think that baptism is a creation of the New Testament, it was actually a common practice in Jewish culture before the time of Jesus. When you look through the Old Testament law throughout Leviticus, you, Leviticus, you see that the Israelites were required to wash themselves after they touched dead things or things that had the appearance of death. So if you touched a dead animal, you had to wash yourself. If you touched a dead body, you had to wash yourself. If you came into contact with certain fluids of the body, you had to wash yourself. But ritual washings were also required if you wanted to enter into the temple or eat food that had been sacrificed on the altar. So in ancient Israel, God expected his people to wash themselves after they had touched dead or dead-looking things or before they would participate in some sort of religious function. So all along throughout the Old Testament and throughout the time between the Testaments, baptism was a ritualist practice meant to reinforce the idea that the people of God are to be holy and set apart from all unclean and dead things. Now before Jesus came into the picture, when a Gentile wanted to become part of the covenant community, the community of God, He or she was baptized because Gentiles, as you may recall, by their very fact that they were Gentiles, were spiritually and ceremonially unclean. And this process was called proselyte baptism because it was the baptism of a proselyte, of a convert. And even before the time of John the Baptist, you read in some Jewish literature that baptism always meant the outward sign of a repentant heart. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. We have John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, baptizing people who are repented of their sins. 
And implicitly, what John the Baptist was trying to do was to continually reinforce the idea that God demands repentance, not simply vain sacrifices. And the purpose of John's baptism was to reawaken the Jewish people to the reality that the Messiah is coming. And he has some choice words for people who do not repent of their sins or come to believe on the name of the Lord. John says this in Luke 3. He says, The one who is coming is greater than I, whose shoes I'm worthy of untying. I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Meaning, that's the, the best kind of baptism is going to come soon. Okay? So Jesus comes along, and we see that Jesus walks up to John the Baptist and asks to be baptized. And John's response is, Well, I should be baptized by you, Lord. And Christ's response is, let it be so in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now that still strikes people as a little bit odd, okay? Why would Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, need to be baptized? He's the Son of God, member of the Trinity. He's not unclean. What's interesting about this passage is where John baptizes Jesus is that nobody really, really understands what it means. And in fact, some of the early church fathers were made uncomfortable by this very passage. But the best answer, I think, is that Jesus was baptized because he wanted to provide an example of what it means to submit yourself to the will of God. In his baptism, Jesus says to the Father, Not my will, but yours be done. And that may grate upon your ears a little bit, you know, because Jesus is God, so he should know the future. But Jesus did mention that the plan of history belongs to the Father, and the Son doesn't know all the details. So there is this sense in which which Jesus, being fully God and fully human, must submit himself to the will of the Father. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Not my will, but yours be done. So after Christ's resurrection, but before his ascension to be at the right hand of God the Father, he tells his disciples this, the Great Commission. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the command to baptize right here. And that's why we consider baptism a sacrament, because Jesus has commanded us to do it. And that's what you see all throughout the book of Acts, okay? You see people who come to know Jesus, and then they're baptized. This is the constant pattern. In Acts chapter 2, you see Peter preaches this amazing sermon. People come to believe, and then they're baptized. You see in Acts chapter 8, when Philip comes across this Ethiopian prince who's reading Isaiah, comes to know Jesus, and wants to be baptized immediately afterwards. You see this all throughout the rest of the book. This shows you just how important the early church thought baptism truly was. But why else is it so important? Is it simply because Christ commanded us to do it? Or is it because there's something else? The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism means identification with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. When we go down into the water, we're being buried with Christ in his death. 
When we come up out of the water, we're identifying with Christ in his resurrection. And this has sort of lost its meaning uh, in the church throughout the centuries. Oftentimes when we want to become baptized, it's because we feel like we have to, like it's an obligation, or because there's immense pressure placed on us from our families, or just because it's the right thing to do. But baptism is so much more than that. Another reason that baptism is important is because the early believers believed that baptism was a political statement. It was a statement that I am a follower of Jesus and nobody else. My hope, my joy, my life, my salvation, my obedience, my worship belong only to Jesus Christ. Generally, when we think about political statements, we think about bumper stickers and slogans. We're in the midst of that season right now, so I don't want to get into that at all. But back in those days, baptism was really a jab against all the political powers that were, including the emperor himself. Baptism is an act of allegiance to Christ and no one else. And because of this, the writers of the New Testament couldn't imagine a believer who hasn't been baptized. The two are so closely aligned with one another, believing and being baptized, that it's tough to make a case that, should, that there should be an extended period of time between when you're saved and when you're baptized. Once you come to know Jesus in your soul and forsake all other idols, the Bible says that you need to show this to the entire world, that you belong to Jesus and Him alone. But baptism means a little something more than our obedience to Christ, all right? Remember that ritual washing in the Old Testament? How every single time the Jews would touch something dead or unholy, they'd have to wash themselves? Before they would participate in temple rituals, they'd have to wash themselves as well? Think about this, what this says about baptism. Under the new covenant, baptism means that you are dying to yourself and finding your new life in Christ. Remember, God never changes. His expectations are always the same. He wants his people clean. And when we come to know Jesus, he cleans us inwardly of all the sins, all the death that, was, that is within our souls. Without Christ, we're dead. But in Christ, we're alive. And what baptism says is that you have been cleansed of all the death and sin within your life. And you're committing your life to following Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why when we baptize people here at Covenant, we immerse them because we believe it best represents what Christ has done inside of us. It's not a ritual we go through all the time. It's something that we do once because Jesus has paid the price of our sins once and for all. Therefore, there's no need for us to baptize ourselves over and over again. We've been buried in Christ and we found our life in Christ and I want to be very, very clear here, okay? Baptism doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. There's nothing magical about the water that grants you salvation. But to be baptized means that inwardly you've died to yourself. You found your life in Christ. You're forsaking all others, and you're going to worship and follow Him and Him alone. That's something significant and meaningful and transformative. That's why it's a command that Jesus has given us to follow all throughout the centuries. That's what the scripture teaches about baptism. Let's talk about the second sacrament, communion. Communion is different from baptism because we're supposed to be doing this 
all the time. Whereas baptism is a one-time thing, communion is something that we do every single Sunday. And before I get into why we do this all the time, let me define communion for you. Communion is when we remember all that Christ has done for us through his death. So recall that baptism and communion are related to each other because they're grounded in Christ's humble obedience unto death, even death on a cross. And also, like baptism, communion kind of has its origins in the Old Testament uh, and uh, ancient Israel in the ancient Passover feast. Okay? Now, if you're not familiar with the practice, the Passover was the single most important feast in the Jewish calendar year because it commemorated one of the most famous episodes of all Hebrew history. When the Egyptian pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go, God sent down ten plagues as punishment, the last of which was the death of every single firstborn in the nation. Okay? But God spared the Israelites because they each sacrificed a lamb and wiped its blood across the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over all the Israelite households. Now, some of you may be unfamiliar with that story and that practice, and it may seem a little crazy. I mean, sacrificing lambs, wiping the blood on their doorposts, it's just disgusting. It sounds strange. But keep in mind that this was how various religions operated back in those days. And God chose to relate to the Israelites in a way that they would understand through sacrifices. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about all these things, but all this to say, it was how the world worked at that time. And if you're curious about what that all means, we can, we can chat more afterwards. So most of you know what happened next, okay? Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. He gets seller's remorse, and he chases after them. And then Moses parts the Red Sea, and all the Israelites go through. And the Pharaoh and his minions die when the Red Sea kind of collapses in on itself. It's pretty epic. That movie with Christian Bale last year wasn't really that epic. The biblical story's better, Okay. It was such an epic and transformative moment in the lives of the Israelites that God told them to celebrate it all throughout the generations in order to commemorate everything that he had done for them. So all throughout the Old Testament, and even through the present day, Jews continue to celebrate this as a pivotal moment in the history of God's chosen people. And over time, different kinds of traditions have been added to it in order to maximize remembrance of all that God has done for them by liberating them from the oppressive hands of the Egyptians. Now, Jesus and his disciples, being the good Jews that they were, would have grown up celebrating the Passover year after year after year after year. And what's interesting about the biblical narrative is that around the same day the Jews would celebrate the Passover, in 32 or 33 A.D., Jesus would begin his journey to the cross of Calvary. So imagine you're there with Jesus the night of his betrayal. The night before he goes to the cross to pay for all the sins of the world. And you're celebrating the Passover meal like you've done your whole life. And you're kind of an intuitive person, so you have a sense that something really important is about to go down. And as they're eating the Passover meal... Jesus says this. He takes a piece of bread. He says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. 
saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you see this particular episode all throughout the four Gospels except for John. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, after all these events, Jesus sang a hymn after the meal. And after that was finished, Judas betrayed Jesus. He was crucified the next day. And as it says in the book of Hebrews, Jesus was the Passover lamb who would provide the sacrifice for sins, past, present, and future, all throughout history. Now, after Jesus instituted the communion meal, you see very little mention of it in the New Testament, okay? Whereas you see the apostles baptizing people left and right throughout the book of Acts, you see very few instances where the text specifically mentions the church taking communion. That's because communion was something that was done every Sunday in the early church. We don't see this in the book of Acts, most likely because it was assumed that it was a regular, regular practice. But if you read some of those early church documents, like the Didache, which was like a a handbook for worship, or if you read the work of Justin Martyr, you'll always see that communion was a regular fixture of the Sunday morning worship service. Now, as I said before, there's very little talk in the New Testament about communion, except for one very pivotal and very important passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Let me give you a little background for that, okay? So the Apostle Paul is writing his epistle to the Corinthians, the group of Corinthians, the Corinthian believers, really, who did some pretty unsavory stuff. When I've preached on 1 Corinthians before, I've made it a point to say how messed up these people were. You look at any church that you've been to and think of all the horrible things that went on there. I can guarantee you that worse things went on in Corinth, okay? They were, they were immoral in every single sense of the word. I was talking to a colleague of mine who teaches at a seminary in Michigan. He was telling me about this one really interesting church that he pastored, right? And he gets there after a couple of weeks, he's doing his things, okay? And the time comes for him to have his first elders meeting. And at the first elders meeting he went to, all the elders sat down, they started talking, And then after a few minutes, they started dropping acid. (laughs) Seriously. So so you have a bunch of of church elders who would conduct church business while they were tripping out on acid. Okay? Let me assure you, the elders of Covenant Church do not do such a thing. Amen, right? (laughs) Now, I tell you this story. Because crazy stuff like this probably happened at the church in Corinth, okay? They probably didn't take acid or anything, but things were much, much worse. And I don't want to get into all the details, but these people were really immoral. And because of their immorality, they began taking the communion meal in an unworthy manner. And as a result, some people got sick and some people even died. Paul writes this. He says this in 1 in Corinthians. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what Paul is saying is that communion is serious business, okay? And if you don't take communion in a worthy manner, you cast judgment on yourself and you could end up dead. 
That's a very real possibility. This isn't some sort of flippant thing that we do because our services are long and people need something to snack on before they go to Panera. This is a time where we reflect on all that Jesus has done for us. And as a result, we examine our lives and we make sure that we're right with God and we're right with other people too. And explicitly, that means that if you have some sin in your life that's consuming you and you refuse to get it to God, give it to God, you shouldn't take communion. But implicitly, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Jesus, you shouldn't be participating in this meal at all. Now here at Covenant, we take communion every single week. Now many of you probably grew up in a tradition where you would take communion once a month or once every quarter or whatever. Now some will argue that by taking communion every single week, communion can become a rather kind of rote ritual that you go through. But the fact is that everything that we do here on a Sunday morning can become rote if your heart isn't in the right place. The sermon can be another boring exercise in knowledge. Worship can be just some cool singing that you do. And communion can just become some little snack that you take. What matters is your heart behind communion, not necessarily how often that you take it. But Jesus did tell us to do this as often as we remember him. And here at Covenant, we believe that taking communion every single week is a faithful means of obedience to Christ's command. But regardless of how often we do it, Paul writes that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now you hear that, and it sort of of grates on your ears a little bit too, okay, doesn't it? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But why not his resurrection? Paul what are you smoking? Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying taking communion reminds us that Christ has paid the price for our sins, past, present, and future. And the resurrection is important to us because all Paul goes on to say in the letter, as he does, that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith is pointless. But without the death of Christ, we're still dead in our sins. That's what we celebrate when we take communion. We remember that our great high priest has paid the ultimate price for all the bad stuff we've done, all the bad stuff we're doing, and all the bad stuff that we will do. So what does this mean for covenant with regards to all the sacraments, baptism and communion? It means that by practicing the sacraments, we tell the story of the gospel. When we baptize or are baptized... We're saying that we were once dead in our sins. We had no hope. We lived only for ourselves. And we served every idol imaginable. But now Christ has made us clean. And he's washed us of our sins. He's given us new life. And we're free to live for him. That's the good news right there. We were dead. And now we're alive again. And maybe you're here. Maybe you've known Jesus for a long time. But you haven't been baptized yet. Maybe you're waiting for something special to happen. There's no better time to be baptized than soon. Because this is where you proclaim to the world that you no longer live for yourself, but you live for Christ. That's the good news right there. And there's no better time to proclaim it, proclaim it than now. When we take communion, we're saying that the redemptive hope of this entire planet is found in the death of the Son of God. We're saying that 2,000 years ago, 
God came down and took upon the form of a man and died for our sins once and for all. And through his death, we can have life abundant and eternal. That's a powerful and transformational thing to behold and should cause us to approach this communion table with a sense of reverence and deep joy. Now, one more thing. You look at these sacraments and you see a lot of death imagery. Either it's our own spiritual death or the death of Christ. What the sacraments do is remind us that death is a very real thing. Whether it's the fact that we're dying to ourselves or that we will die or that Christ has died in our place. But even though we may cause, these sacraments may cause us to stare into the face of death and think about death, it causes causes us to reflect upon the one who has conquered death. And that's what we're going to be doing right now, celebrating this beautiful sacrament. It's a time to reflect on how great of sinners we are, but also how great of a Savior we have. And it's a time to worship God with all of our hearts. And it's a time to ask for forgiveness, either from God or from others. Now, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here. And in a few moments, I'm going to invite you to take a piece of bread Dip it into the cup. Remember how much God loves you that he sent his son to die in your place and how he wants your heart because living for Jesus is the most satisfying, thrilling thing that you'll ever experience. You're not going to find hope or joy or peace in anything other than Jesus. And when we take communion, this reminds us of the fact that Jesus has paid the price for our sins once and for all. We don't have to sacrifice any lambs anymore. We don't have to sacrifice goats or bulls or whatever because he's laid down his life for us to pay for our sins, past, present, and future. That's powerful. Amen? Will you stand with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as we take this communion meal, that as we reflect on all that you've done for us, that you would help us to live as your servants in this lost and broken world, Lord. I pray that if there's people here who don't know you or all the powerful things that you've done, that they would come to know you now, Lord. I pray for repentant hearts in this room. I pray for people who have made a fresh commitment to know you and make you known, Lord. I pray that you'll use this time of worship to transform us from the inside out and use us to be your messengers of grace in this lost and broken world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.